The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for turkey waffles. And um, we, uh, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, for uh, the breadth of your scriptures that we have walked through uh, in this last year and a half. And we ask, God, that now that as we finish this, that you would uh, give our hearts pause and praise uh, that we might know you, love you, serve you uh, more and more each day with gladness and singleness of heart. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Guys, gals, we started in September 2018 with Genesis chapter 1. Many of you have been to most of these sessions. We looked at a hundred passages, some a little more closely than others. 50 in the Old Testament, 50 in the New Testament. We saw the breadth, the whole breadth of Scripture. I mean, I gotta say, I've never done I've, I've never done this before. I've never gone, I've never taught all the way through Scripture like this. This was really remarkable. And I uh, for me anyway, personally, I hope it was remarkable for you. And I hope you got to get a sense of the breadth and the wonder and the accessibility of Scripture, and even when it doesn't feel accessible, uh, that you feel compelled uh, to still soak in it. Uh, it has been uh, just I don't know, remarkable. I, I cannot um, give us uh, get you to maybe reflect on it for just a minute, and, to, and as we have gone through and uh, the whole of Scripture, to is there anything that you that stands out to you? that you, um, uh, having been through this walk, I just think it's a, a significant thing that we've, we've gone through this whole thing. Anybody want to reflect on that? You just love the fact that we've done it. Yeah, good, me too. Um, you know, I, it has been a challenge for, for me and, um, and, and a wonder. I, I've really enjoyed it. So, um, we're gonna. So next week, uh, this is our last one. We're finishing up the last pages of scripture uh, with Revelation, and then um, we're gonna have an Advent series. Uh, I'm gonna do next week's, and then Father Trent is gonna do three weeks uh, in a row, and um, he's put this uh, all together. We're looking at the characteristics of Christ. I mean, characteristics of God as they relate to um, Advent, and I'll be talking about God as Deliverer next week. Uh, so I hope you'll join us for that. But this has been a special and wonderful thing. We started in the garden and we are ending in a city. Uh, we started, we might say, with creation. And we're ending with new creation. So, um, you know, we started with uh, God's presence with His people. Think of uh, Adam and Eve. God walking uh, in the garden in the cool of the day face-to-face, very present uh, with them. And we're ending with God's presence with His people. Again, face-to-face, this new Jerusalem. It, uh, it says God, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. Um, the whole thing, the whole Bible ends with promise and invitation. And I think that is actually something really... Remarkable. It doesn't end with a period, the end. It ends with the invitation. Come. 
We're going to get to that. I will say that this is, uh, these are passages we're looking at at Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22 today. And these are passages that require, I think, a, a good bit of study from the teacher. And I had some things sort of crop up that I didn't anticipate. And I would, I, I never tell, if I haven't studied enough, I don't tell you. Like, I, I, don't, I don't say, well, I didn't get it as, as if to set you up. But I just want to say that I would, the reason I'm telling you now that I didn't study this as, as with as much depth this week as possible is because you may have some questions that require some depth. And I want you to ask those. And if I don't know the answer, uh, I want to find them. Uh, and so we may, we may have some real, uh, import, very important uh, questions. So today I want to just kind of briefly look at uh, each chapter, 19, 20, 21, 22. And I particularly want to think about and, and let you know about the, um, the different ways to view the thousand-year reign of Christ. And... Um, and unless you have any answers, uh, any questions about that uh, that you have. And if, again, if I, if I know the answer, I'll, I'll tell you. If I don't, I'll make something up. And then, um, or tell you, I'll get back to you. And, um, and, and, then, um, and then we'll be done. So, um, anyway, uh, it begins, chapter 19, it begins with rejoicing. So last week, we ended with this glimpse. We looked at the seven letters to the churches, and we got a glimpse into heaven uh, with the throne and the uh, 24 elders and then the multitudes around the beasts and the crystal sea and the, and the multitudes and mul- multitudes and multitudes around the throne worshiping. So what's happened between then and now is there's been the unleashing of the, and the opening of the scrolls, the seven seals and the seven scrolls by the Lamb, and what uh, you would hope that when the Lamb opens the scrolls that we have uh, doves and rainbows, but it is the opposite of that. It is, um, it is uh, scary stuff. It is uh, destruction. It is tribulation. It is um, angst and anguish and death, plague and famine and natural disaster. Um, and at the end of it, we have towards that we see Satan, this uh, portrayed as a great serpent with seven heads. Um, before this woman who is bearing a child, and we think, well, we know who that is. That's the Virgin Mary bearing uh, Jesus, and and that is one good interpretation. I've heard another interpretation is that that's actually the church bear, which is to bear Christ. To the world, and because the, the woman actually retreats, well, <laughs> the church does sometimes uh, retreat. But ultimately, it is the armies of God that uh, bind up Satan and, and defeat Satan. So we, uh, interestingly, uh, nineteen begins with rejoicing before the final defeat of Satan. Uh, but there is great rejoicing in heaven. There is. Um, uh, the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is where we think of the heavenly banquet, and um, which I'm sure there will be turkey waffles uh, uh, there. Uh, that at least, at least, sometime, that was were amazing. Um, and then, again, the angel who's walking John through this vision uh, says in chapter 19. Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and then John says he fell down at his feet. 
to worship Him. So great, so, so mighty and majestic and glorious was this angelic being that John just couldn't take it anymore. And at the invitation to come and, and sup with the Lamb, he just falls down to worship this angel. And the angel immediately snatches him up and says, You must not do that. I am a fellow worker alongside you. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? Because we can imagine, we can understand why John would be prone to worship this angel, to uh, because he's just so uh, heavenly, so otherworldly, that the impulse, the instinct, is to offer him our praise. And he says, "Do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus." That's the angel's job. He hold the testimony. Jesus. Now, the book of Hebrews actually says something really special about this. It says that, um, that we, as redeemed creatures, have something that the angels do not. Angels have never known redemption. They have never been forgiven, for they have not fallen. And we understand about fallen angels a little bit, maybe. That's, that's, um, not, we're not going to cover that here. But, um, but just to think about, even though we uh, may be compelled to worship such a glorious being, this being actually, um, the book of Hebrews says, has some jealousy of us. That they long to look into the things that we are experiencing. Because uh, we have experienced redemption. We have been brought out of sin into salvation. Which is an experience that the angel uh, never had. Anyway, pretty remarkable. Just wanted to highlight that. But the angel sees himself as a, as a co-laborer with John. And I think with you and me. That is, that is um, uh, not just John as, a, as the great, a great evangelist and apostle, but a, John as a human who loves and believes in Jesus. And then we see Jesus appear. The rider on the white horse. This is pretty amazing. It says, I saw heaven. This is um, cha- verse 11, chapter 19. I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. In fact, what he does make war against is against war. Anyway, his eyes are like a flame of fire. We saw that last week, right? His, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Remember John wrote about that in his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Right? We'll actually look at that passage on Christmas Day. Uh, Trent will um, preach on Christmas Day. So, We know that this is uh, Jesus as He goes on to say, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Again, He's he's, uh, with His Word. The the sword is coming out of His mouth. It's His Word that is judging the nations, striking them down as in in judgment, which is to say, uh, proving His own might over theirs and His own righteousness over theirs. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury 
of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus as a warrior, which has come to judge the earth. Um, it's a little scary, except we are not among the nations, because we are those who are saved. We are the ones on the white horses with Him, I think. Um, okay, so, any questions about that? No, let's keep moving. All right. Um, just, <laughs> any questions about that? Comments? Yes, Charlene. So, Charlene is wondering if there's a contradiction between the gentleness we see of Jesus and the warrior that we see here in Revelation. And, and I would say that he, when He comes in uh, His incarnation and in His life, he comes, to, um, he comes to save. And here, uh, since He has died and risen again and ascended... Uh, all those that He has come to judge, and we're actually going to see more about judgment uh, in the thousand year reign as we look at what that might look like. But um, He's coming, I, I think that even at, I think chapter 22 is going to suggest that to, to the, even at the very end there is still hope, there's still promise and invitation. But sometimes it is the threat of judgment that, that drives people to cry out for a, a Savior. And I think that He is coming to judge those who have not given themselves to His death and resurrection. Um, and that's, what, that's in the way in which he strikes down the nations. I, I don't think that he is uh, contradictory to his own person. Um, but I think we have to, although I understand exactly why you would say that, um, I think we have to find a breadth of the person of Jesus as both human and divine uh, that has the, the authority and the right um, and the need to judge sin as well. So... Um, you know, it might sound scary, but I think that, um, I mean, if you think about the thing, the sin, I always think about it like this, and this may or may not be satisfying to you, but just think about, if you think about the sin that has been committed against you, that it would not be loving for God to say, hey, listen, blow it off, no big deal, Right? I mean, maybe some smaller things, but there's some, I mean, some people, some of you, and certainly as people we know and in our wide society, there are atrocities committed. It would not do any good for God to say, eh, I just forgive everybody and love everybody. That to me would actually not be loving. That actually that, that God has to judge sin as a function of His love. The problem is that we're sinners. <laughs> and so we stand in that and so what we need is grace. How God works that all out, I, I'm not really sure. But as a function of His love for those whom He has redeemed and who have given their lives to Him, he, it is a goodness, I think, that He judges sin. Even though what we'll see at the end is that there is always invitation. There's always a chance to repent. It's like when your children do bad and you spank them and tell them you're doing that because you love Yes, yeah, this, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. That is a good line. Um, the... Um, just, 
Um, no, I think it, I, there's a, a, real, a, a realness, a reality to that sentiment, I think. All right, so then what we have uh, as we enter chapter 20 is the thousand-year reign of Christ. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. What? All right. So there's several different ways. And I just, the reason I want to take some time with this is because you, you'll hear about this. If you, if you ask friends and if you have conversations, if you do any research on it, you'll hear about millennialism and premillennialism and postmillennialism. And, uh, and so I want to just talk a little bit about what the different ways to understand, the different ways that Christians understand this thousand-year reign of Christ. We talk, remember we talked about different ways to um, approach the book of Revelation last week, that there are people who say this is all past, it's already happened, it's all about John and, and Rome, Babylon is Rome, and that's, that's all uh, what, what happened uh, in the past. Uh, there's people who say it's all in the future. It had, none of this has happened yet, it's all in times. There's people who say it's actually kind of a... a um, it's a, it's a chart of, of Christian history from the first coming to the second coming, and then there are those who say, we're not really sure. There's definitely some present stuff, just stuff that's present for John. There's stuff that's future for us. Uh, there is, uh, and everywhere in between, there's principles that we uh, can take. So, and that's kind of the school I, I fall in. Um, the, um, and so some of these, are, these ways to view the, millennial, uh, m- the millennium are... Um, consistent with, with those different views. So, essentially what we have is uh, we have the cross and the resurrection. We have the church age. We have, um, we'll call that a throne. You see that? Throne, chair. Um, and then uh, we have eternity, right? Okay. So what happens here? The first one is called premillennialism, and what that says. I'm going to get. I, 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 again, I wish uh, you can probably you can go in your study Bible, and it's going to have these things laid out. But Christ comes before the millennial age. Resurrection. Christ comes back. We have the millennial age. Uh, with believers, and um, so there's the church age. Oh, let me do this this way. He comes back. He takes us with him. Sorry. There's the rapture. We reign for a thousand years with Christ. comes back, overthrows the devil, takes his reign for a gift. So here's the thousand years. This is premillennialism. Okay, so comes down, takes us, uh, now, um, within that, there are some, there's some discussion about where is the tribulation. Was the tribulation here before he comes back? Is the tribulation here? And we're not subject to that because he's taken us away. This is called 
pre-tribulation millennialism, right here, where Christ comes and raptures believers, and then there's a seven-year tribulation where it gets really bad. That is the Left Behind series. If you read the Left Behind series or watched those amazing movies, um, not so much. Um, the um, so um, and then there's thousand-year reign. Then there's the resurrection of unbelievers who will face judgment, and then we have the new heaven and eternity. So that's that's um, sort of premillennialism. Post-tribulation premillennialism says, basically, I think, best I understand it, we have, uh, basically we're in tribulation right now, Christ is going to rapture us, he's going to have a thousand, we're going to have a thousand years, he comes back. And there's actually some people who are mid-tribulation, like there's tribulation here, and he comes in the middle. Post, that's premillennial, post-millennialism. <coughs> says, actually, as, as I understand it, I may, you can probably imagine that different people call these things, have different descriptions of these things. Postmillennium says this, we're actually um, in the tri tribulation right now. The Christ is going to come again and take us. He's going to come. He's going to take us back after the tribulation, reign for a thousand years, um, and, and well, no. And so the tribulation is the millennium. The millennium. It's not an actual thousand years. It's a symbolic thousand years. And Christ comes after the millennium, takes us back, and reigns. So I, I guess that's here. Um, that's not very clear. I'm not describing it super clear. I don't read. It's it's similar to the uh, uh, pre-much calculus. Yeah, it's like calculus. <laughs> All right. So there's premillennialism saying Christ is going to come before the thousand years. Postmillennialism, Christ comes after the thousand years. Uh, but this is more symbolic. And amillennialism. Amillennialism means there's not an actual thousand years. It's a symbolic number. We're in the church age, and that is the tribulation. That's us right now. And it's hard. And Christ is reigning within the church, but always against suffering. Always against persecution. Always, there is, Christ is reigning through the exercise of the church. Christ will come again. There will be the resurrection of believers and non-believers at the same time. And um, and we will then uh, Christ will take His throne, and we those who who believe in Christ and are counted with Christ will rise with Him, and those <laughs> who don't won't. So, um, and, and that's I have to say that this kind of typically says we're not sure when that's going to be. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, and this is where I this is where I am. We are in the tribulation. All the things that are predicted like wars and famines and earthquakes and these are, things are happening. It's not one really terrible season of seven years. It's, those are all symbolic numbers. Um, Christ is going to come again. He's going to judge the living and the dead. And he will take his throne. That's kind of where I stand. There are lots of different ways to look at this. I mean, I would never question the salvation or the, 
uh, even the judgment of someone who reads it a different way. But that's kind of where I stand. So, questions? <laughs> no? Yes, Katie. I think the one thing that is important in all of this, and for us to remember, because we are full of grace, hopefully, and we don't want anyone to be lost, and neither does God, but in Scripture it says, some will be lost to eternity, that they will just be so stubborn, nothing will get them to admit and submit to God. Yeah. So Katie it's said, unfortunate. Yeah, if you can't, can hear Katie said that, that in the end there will be some who are stubborn and will not give themselves uh, to, to the Lord. I mean, even, even there's different opinions about what the Lord will do with that, you know, but, um, but I think that there are some people, I mean, C.S. Lewis says it really well, and he says that, that for those, there's some to say to God, thy will be done. And there are those who say to whom God says, Thy will be done. Because they say, I want what I want, and what I want is no God. So, so I, think you're, I, mean, I think you're right. I think there will be some. But it's not because there's no invitation. It's, but not, there's no, uh, it's not because God is mad. You didn't do the right thing, or you didn't believe the right thing. It's because they have withheld His invitation. Um, we don't like thinking of that because there's people we love that we are afraid are going to fall into that category. Um, I mean, let's just name that. But it is, um, uh, it is, nevertheless, God is great and wonderful and loving and just, and He will, it will shake out like it's supposed to. There will not be lament and wailing in heaven over over the lost, um, because there will be no tears and no death. Um, I don't think that means we lack a sensitivity. Again, read The Great Divorce. It's not scripture by any means. It's imagination. But it is a really, really good book by C.S. Lewis that really makes us think a lot. Um, chapter 21. New heaven, new earth. This is a funeral passage. It's my favorite funeral passage. I love it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I'm not sure what that means. And I saw the holy city, this is where the funeral reading begins, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Remember I said we started in a garden, we end in a city, here we are. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, this is the new place for people to be with God. It's essentially a new Eden. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, who is the husband is Christ, the bride is the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. How billions of people will be, have access to God at once? I don't know. But I believe they will. We will. I believe we will. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is such good news. Um, the story I always think about with, with this, uh, when I was on John's Island, uh, right outside of Charleston, my first church, there, was, um, there were two women, uh, a mother and a daughter. The mother was in her mid to late 80s. The daughter was in her mid-50s. And... Um, 
and they lived next door to each other and hadn't talked in 10 years. And, um, and sometime around Thanksgiving, the mother died. And, um, and you know, it was sad and a shock, but it wasn't, I mean, wasn't that much of a shock. And um, I don't remember the circumstances, but what was a shocking is that three weeks later, the daughter died. She went to bed, said she had a headache, had a massive uh, brain bleed, and just didn't wake up. And it was shocking and terrible. And I, went, I rushed over there. I, I don't remember why it was me and not the rector, um, but I, except that I had a kind of a relationship with that family, and I, I rushed over there. And um, we, had, we were, you know, crying and praying, and, and um, I didn't really, I mean, I didn't really know this woman that well, but I, I knew her, her mom, and I knew her sister who shuttled messages back and forth. And, um, and I, um, the husband got up and, and um, to take a call, and I was sitting with her three young adult children, 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there. And the obvious question was, well, well <laughs> I mean, not just what do we do, but now mom and uh, grandma are back together. And one said, what do you think grandma's going to do when she sees mama walking through those gates? <laughs> and it was a holy moment because I was able to say that all those things are behind them now. And... Um, and this was the passage that, we pre- that I preached on at that funeral. And I remember saying, Behold, I, made, I told that story about the, the kids saying that. And, and, I, and I said, Behold, I'm making all things new. I mean, this is, this is uh, all brokenness, all relational brokenness is behind us. Um, often I'll say, you know, someone who's having trouble forgiving or being forgiven, or if I know two people like that, I'll say, you know, gosh, they're going to spend a lot of time together <laughs> for a long time up in heaven. They need to get that thing worked out. So, um, you know, I just, I think, behold, I'm making all things, not just relationships, and making heaven and earth new. Um, I mean, can you imagine what it's going to be like to live in a world without sin? Actually, I don't think we can imagine that. I don't know what preachers are going to do, and there's no need for repentance. <laughs> I don't know what mental health counselors are going to do without, without any uh, mental illness. I don't know what police officers are going to do. If there, there's no crime. I don't know. I know what cooks and artists and musicians will do. But I, Worship. Just worship. Maybe we'll get a break. Um, yeah, no, just kidding. Um, the, uh, so, you know, it's, it is a, a remarkable... I mean, to, to contemplate life without the oppression of sin is too wonderful and, and beyond our ultimate grasp, but a worthy endeavor nonetheless. Um, the New Jerusalem, he starts measuring it, and it's like a scene out of Ezekiel. I mean, literally, like I think it's Ezekiel 34 to 40, and where he ma- measures the, the, the temple and the, the leaves uh, on the trees are for the healing of the nations. And it's all, this is very Ezekiel. Um, but verse 22 in chapter 21 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No temple, because they've got God. Because the dwelling place of God has always been in the temple, but now the dwelling place of God is with humanity. 
and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That is glorious and weird, but glorious. Um, so then we get to 22, the very last pages of Scripture. And Jesus is coming, and John's writing it down as fast as he can. Uh, but at the very end, this, it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is Isaiah. But it's just, like, even at the end, even when it seems like all should be, the door should be locked and it's all done, there is an invitation. Come. Come. Please don't find yourself on the outside. Please don't be among the goats. Be among the sheep. Just please come. Invitation. To the very last. I just think that's remarkable and so typical of our gracious God. That in the midst of things that are scary that we don't understand, in the midst of sure and certain judgment, all of which, if we let Him, He's taken upon Himself, that the Spirit, which is God, and the Bride, which is the Church, say to those who are not in the Spirit and of the Bride, say, Come. Let all who are thirsty drink. Come, buy without price. It is just a remarkably gracious invitation. And I love that the whole story ends with the promise of the King's return. I mean, it's so great that this fallen on Christ the King, isn't it? Um, Christ the King Sunday. But the, um, the whole thing ends with the return of the King and the invitation to those who have not yet come. Please. Please come. There is a lot more to say about this part. Um, but we have four minutes. Do you have any questions about any of the um, teachings we've had in the last year and a half? Um, yeah, right now. Yes, Richard. What was the C.S. Lewis book that I referred to? C.S. Lewis book that I referred to is called The Great Divorce. It's about 100 pages. Guys have a hard time with the first 30, I've, I've usually found. Um, the uh, the imagery is um, pretty fantastic, uh, but it's it's uh, once you kind of figure out the 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 aesthetic of it, it's uh, it's it, it's very very compelling. I'm sorry, I caught the The Great Divorce. Is it about Revelation or what? It's about heaven. Oh. It's actually about the doorstep of heaven. Some people from hell go there on vacation. <laughs> They don't like it. C.S. <laughs> Lewis. Other questions? Or comments? So the divorce in the great divorce is between heaven and hell. That's, that's the great divorce. It is a remarkable word. Alright, well, I suggest that you go back and read this. Uh, you know, we worked our way through it, but just go back and read it a time or two um, over the course of your life. And we will be back with Advent 1, God the Great Deliverer, next week. God bless you.